Love it. How about that? Uh, welcome, friends in the room, friends in Fort Worth and Houston and El Paso and Cedar Rapids and wherever you are joining us from as we continue this series, The Afterlife, a look at uh, what is beyond the grave or after death. Um, anyone a big fan of the beach in here? Yeah. Or uh, Mexico or Cancun? Any Cancun fans? So um, when I got engaged to my now wife uh, about five and a half years ago, I, um, six years ago, I uh, was, was essentially assigned one thing. So this is just a little free tip here. Men, whenever you get engaged, you're essentially given one thing, or at least I was only entrusted with one responsibility, and hey, you can't mess this up, so go get after it. She'll cover the flowers, everything else. You just cover this. And it was the honeymoon. And so I am uh, tasked with getting the honeymoon, and I'm not going to let my soon-to-be bride down, so I'm going to find the best place in the entire world we're going to go to. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be, you know, whatever honeymoon spot is the best one available, we're going to go there. I had been given some advice at this time in my life that I'm not sure is (laughs) good advice or definitely not biblical, but it was this. It was, hey, there's two things in life you can't spend too much money on, an engagement ring, because she's going to have it hopefully forever, and the honeymoon. And so I was like, man, I'm all in on that. Okay, so I essentially go, I'm gonna break the bank. I invest, I find the best place. It was this place called the Paradise of Beauty, Pariso de la Bonita. I know, habla espanol. And, uh, and I researched it. It, had, it was like really secluded. You had your own maid. You had 1,250 square feet. It uh, was each size of each room. You had your own private plunge pool. You had two flat screens, not one, but two flat screens inside of your uh, hotel room. I mean, it was like uh, the, uh, uh, to the nines. Uh, every morning at breakfast, there'd be somebody out there with like literally a huge golden harp just playing music for you as you sit in paradise and you're enjoying it. There was this gourmet chef that was a part of it. It was a gourmet all-inclusive of what it was called. I mean, it was like, dude, we are never, ever going to be able to come back here, but it's going to be amazing when we're there. And so we, uh, you know, the wedding week comes. We get through the wedding. Saturday night, we got married on a Saturday night. We were going to leave Monday morning so that we didn't have to get up early next morning and go on an airplane ride and get out of there. And so the wedding comes, everything goes great, wedding night goes great, and then uh, Sunday, we're waiting to leave the next day, and around late afternoon, I begin to experience something that's gonna sound just bizarre to you, but I began to have, the closest thing I know how to describe it would be like almost a panic attack about what are we gonna do at Pariso de la Bonita, I have no idea. I barely even know this woman. I'm about to go spend eight days with her. We're going to a foreign country. It's like secluded. It's like you just lay around and relax. I like when I vacation, I want to like go and go see things and excursion. And I begin, I know that sounds crazy and bizarre, but I'm like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do there for eight days? And I know what you're thinking. It's your honeymoon. I know what you're going to (laughs) do. After 10 minutes of that, you're like, what are we going to do for the rest of the time on this time? And so I'm like, this is legitimate. For you, you're not, this is, I know. All right, back with me. <laughs> it's true. Anyways. <laughs> anyways, <laughs> I'm wondering, like, legitimately, I'm, like, starting to freak out. I'm like, it was a low moment, for real. My wife, my poor wife at the time, as I'm like, I begin to, like, get choked up. I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know what we're going to do in the paradise of beauty. I mean, we're just going to lay around for eight days. That sounds terrible. I'm going to be bored out of my mind. I, I, true story, go to Barnes & Noble, get like 12 books. I'm like, I'm going to make this an educational trip if we have to <laughs> because I have no idea what are we going to do. We chose this like boutique, tiny hotel. Oh, man, I'm going to be bored out of my mind in paradise of beauty. 
and I, truly, I began to like think through like, man, maybe we should stay here in Dallas. You know, there's some cool hotels around here. Maybe we get out of this. And, um, and it sounds funny, but it's true. I was like, really like, oh man, what are we going to do? And um, I say all of that because in a very similar parallel way, that I was afraid or I was concerned about, man, paradise. Everyone says it's paradise of beauty. It's amazing. Incredible reviews. Supposed to be awesome. It's your honeymoon week. Supposed to be incredible. And yet I have no idea what we're going to do. I'm like, I'm not even sure I want to go and be a part of that. In a very similar way that that paradise was not something I wanted to go to. I think today a lot of us experience something similar as it relates to heaven. Like, it's, it's kind of this place where everyone says it's amazing, it's going to be great someday, and yet if we were honest in our heart of hearts, we're kind of like, I don't know, I want to go when I die someday, because I don't want to go to hell, and so if I'm between those two options, I want to go someday, but I don't know that I want to go today, and I don't know that I want to rush through, you know, I don't want to miss out on not getting married, or I want to get married someday, or I want to have kids first, and, and heaven sounds like some place that I kind of want to go, I'm just not sure what we're going to do, I mean, forever is a long time. What are we going to do up there? And then you have people saying things like, hey, you're going to be on a cloud. You're going to be playing a harp. You're like, that, I think I'd rather stay in Dallas if that's what we're going to be <laughs> under doing. I mean, that doesn't sound, or other people say it's like, hey, it's like one big worship service, church service. And maybe you're like, I don't like music. So you're like, uh, let's review again. What are the two options? Hell, let's go through that one more time. Or the church service forever. Ah, and uh, it just doesn't sound that great. And I think the truth of the reality is if we understood what awaits us in eternity, what awaits us in heaven or in paradise, it would be something that we couldn't wait to get there. Uh, truly, I think one of the reasons the Bible is a little bit cryptic in the way that it describes it in kind of like allegory and metaphor is because if, if we truly understood all that awaited us in the pleasure ahead of us of just the, um, what it will be like there, the suicide rate might increase because people are like, man, I just want to get out of here. I can't wait to be there. And so tonight, we're going to talk about heaven because it is anything but boring. It is anything but a place that you don't want to go to, and we're going to discover exactly from God's word what heaven is like. It's not one long church service. Spoiler alert, you're not on a cloud with a harp wearing a diaper. You are going to experience what this world was always intended to be. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 as we explore what heaven or what paradise will be like. Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to look at what heaven is like and what it's not based on the uh, passage that we're looking at. Who will be in heaven or who will be in this eternal paradise? And finally, once and for all, what are we going to do in heaven forever and ever and ever? So Revelation chapter 21, Revelation is the only prophetic book inside of the New Testament. What do I mean by prophecy? It's basically like, hey, we're looking in the future. And uh, it was a book that was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' best friends. And John uh, basically outlived all the other disciples. The other guys uh, had either gotten killed for their faith or um, had, had gone off and um, had lost their life as a missionary. And John, as an old man, is exiled by the Roman Empire to this island called Patmos. Basically, they're like, hey, you gotta go sit in timeout, John, for the rest of your life. And so John is out there, and while he's there, uh, God essentially gives him this vision of what heaven is gonna be like. And it says, man, I want you to write this stuff down. And this is what the future ages of the church are gonna go through. That's the revelation. And then he goes in, and this is what heaven one day is gonna be like. So we're gonna pick it up in verse one of chapter 21 as John describes what he saw. 
John speaking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that's this one, had passed away. And there was no longer any sea that he sees this new heaven and this new earth. And he says, there's no sea on the earth. What does that mean? The sea in today's day on our planet right now is um, 97% of the water on planet earth is undrinkable. Did you know that? There's too much salt in it or it's not clean enough. In other words, it provides one purpose and one one purpose alone. Or the primary thing it does is divide people. It separates us. And he says, in this new heavens and this new earth, there's no sea. It's like no, there's no division among man. And he says this, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. God will dwell with mankind and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are faithful and true. A first idea I wanna talk about is what is heaven like? And we're told some indication, heaven is this earth made new. It's a new heavens and a new earth. It is like earth 2.0. So in other words, if you have this idea of what heaven is like is you're kind of floating around in the clouds up there and someday uh, you're off. The Bible teaches that what we're gonna experience is this earth that we're on resurrected or made new. This earth, but only in 2.0 version. Everything wrong with this earth restored, made right, everything broken, fixed, and put back together that as God originally intended and designed it at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter one, and man introduced sin and everything fractured, and the Bible teaches that everything will be restored and made new. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, uh, if you have a Bible, you can uh, read that later, or you can read it later tonight, you can write to Romans chapter eight. Paul begins to talk about creation, and he says the world around us, it's like it remembers not being subjected to futility is what he says. It remembers what it was like to not be broken, that the creation, it says, longs, Paul says, every tree, everything that you see, the mountains, the sea, the ocean, all of it longs to be set free, Paul says in Romans chapter eight, from the bondage that came with sin. It longs to experience being set free and there's gonna come a day where everything is set free, where every, Every animal, every plant, everything will be set free. This earth will be entirely made new. There's gonna be a new Mount Everest. There's gonna be a new, like a redeemed or restored, uh, made new again Hawaii. Think about that. There's gonna be a new Dallas, hopefully with more things to do. There's gonna be a new, um, wherever you live, wherever you're from, all of it will be made new. Here's why that's important. Because that means that it changes the way that you live this life. Like you don't have to, if you're a Christian, you're gonna spend eternity and eternity and forever and ever on the new earth in a earth 2.0 where everything uh, good about this earth as you're currently experiencing and is there, only it's even better and it has nothing uh, of the curse of sin that's a part of it. It means that you don't have to have a bucket list if you're a Christian because you're gonna, you, you can just have a list because you're like, hey, look, I can go to Everest in this life or in the next and I can't die in the next one. 
and, uh, and, or I can go to Hawaii in this one, or I can go to Hawaii 2.0. Maybe I'll wait for that one. And it can allow you that, man, I'm gonna do maybe the only thing that I can't do in eternity in the new heavens and earth, which is tell people about Jesus. I don't have to spend my life being like, how am I gonna get the most adventures and experiences for me in this life? Because I'm gonna have forever and ever and ever. I don't have to have a bucket list. I can just have a list. What the Bible teaches about where we are right now is that we are not at the final destination. There's gonna come a day where everything broken in this world will be made new. And that's ultimately where we're gonna spend eternity. Uh, it's like we're at the airport. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, tomorrow I'm gonna go to an airport because we're flying out of town for something. And um, I don't know if you've been to an airport recently. Here's what every person at the airport has in common. No one wants to be there. Okay, it's, I mean, truly, it's one of the few places in life where everyone's like, yeah, I don't want to be here. I'm waiting here in order to get to my destination. Like, truly, you look around, and it's, there's some places in life you go, and some people want to be there, and some people don't. Um, and then there's places like the airport, where it's like, literally, everyone is like, I am, this is not where I'm supposed to be right now, or I can't wait to get to my final destination. That's what the Bible says this earth is like. That it is a place where it is not your final destination. And so as crazy as it would be for someone to be like, I'm going to post up shop and really go all in investing in my little chair at the airport because this is my life. I'm going to really invest here and this is what I care about. That's how it talks about this world or this earth. It would be just as crazy for us that ultimately it is not the destination that you and I will spend our lives. And the destination we will spend our lives is crazy as it thinks to be like, how, how amazing is heaven going to be? Everything broken in your world and in my world will be no more. The curse will be over. There will be no more breakups. There will be no more job loss. There will be no more cancer, no more death, no more sickness, no more back pain, no more balding, no more uh, need for medical uh, attention, no more um, anything wrong with this world, no more you know, battle of the bulge or fight against gravity. You're gonna have totally redeemed and glorified bodies. That's what the Bible teaches, awaits you and me. And it'll be fully inside of the presence of God in his very first action, we're told. Did you read it? What's the very first thing that God does? Is it sit you down and scold you? Hey, let me tell you, all right, let's play the clip here, huh? What are you thinking here? Let's talk about this one. Is that what God does? No, it's like the most intimate act that you could do. He reaches across in the same hands that were crucified, wipes away the tears of his children. I mean, how intimate is that? I mean, if I was to come up, if you were crying and I just came up and I was like, you'd be, I, you may take a swing and be like, what are you doing, man? It's like a father wiping away his child's tears. And that's what awaits us. And that's the very first act that he does. What else awaits us is a pleasure, the Bible says, that comes from being in his presence. It says in his presence, Psalm 16, there is pleasures forever. Like so many pleasures and in such a level you can't even begin to comprehend them is what it teaches I mean, truly, I, this is where I think it almost breaks down and it becomes hard for us to even uh, uh, ha have a, a knowledge of what could possibly await us because we don't have a category for the uh, pleasures uh, of an eternal realm, an eternal heaven where everything is healed and everything is right. We only have the pleasures of this world to kind of compare it. Like, it's like this. It would be like attempting to explain the pleasure of sex to a child who thinks the highest pleasure in the universe is chocolate. They would be like, what? 
is it like, and I mean, think about that. They would have no category for it. They'd be like, what do you mean? And you're like, yeah, probably the height of human pleasure would be, you know, sex and marriage and intimacy. And they'd be like, well, is it like chocolate? Because chocolate is the greatest. And you're like, no, it's not really like chocolate. It's way better than chocolate. And they're like, well, it's chocolate. Do you eat chocolate? Is it a part of it? Not usually, but um, <laughs> it's way better. I mean, they just could think about it, truly. They just couldn't have a category. Because they're like, I can't even imagine a pleasure better than chocolate. That's what it's like when you and I think of like, man, well, is it like, you know, is heaven like, you know, just endless fill in the blank? It's like, man, it's so much better than you can even comprehend is what the Bible teaches. And that's what awaits you and I. Well, it awaits a particular group of people. So the first idea of, hey, what is heaven like? It's this place where the earth is redeemed and made new and restored. It's a place full of the presence of God and the pleasure that comes from living in his presence. And then it tells us who will be there in verse 6. Jesus said, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, which is essentially a word that, it's the word pharmakia, it essentially was like drug use at that time. The idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And then in verse 9 through 26, he begins, John talks about some of the dimensions and almost like the measurements of heaven. You should go read it later. Wish we had enough time to cover all of that. But I'm going to keep going as he relates to really just covering who will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And he says this in verse 27. Nothing impure will enter it, the new heavens and new earth, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So if you take notes, you can write out who will spend eternity with God, and we're gonna go through what the scripture says are those who will spend eternity with God, because it says several things. It says thirsty, what does that mean? Those who accept freely, those who are victorious, or overcome you may have in your translation, and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does it mean that those who are thirsty? What does it mean to be thirsty? It means people who acknowledge their need like if I was to, uh, you know, show up to a group of people that half of them had just finished running a marathon, they were dehydrated, they were dying of thirst, and then the other half was like, no, I've got a camelback on, I've been great. You would, you would see, hey, one group has a need, they are thirsty and in need, and they acknowledge their need, they're willing to take a drink. The other is like, man, I'm totally fine. Jesus says the people who will spend eternity in heaven are those who say, I need a savior. I need someone who can save me. And he says that the ones who will spend eternity with him are those who say, I accept the free gift. That's what it says. They accept without cost that Jesus will provide the eternal life or the payment for their sin by giving his life in their place. He said, those are the people that will spend eternity with God. Not good people. You hear it said every single week that the Bible doesn't teach, and it's insane how many people out there think the Bible teaches, Christianity teaches, the God who's up there wants good people in heaven and bad people in hell. And the way you get to heaven is by being good. The Bible doesn't say, whosoever behaves shall not perish but have eternal life. It says, whoever believes. What does it mean to believe? It means to, uh, by faith, 
Put your trust in Jesus, his death in your place, dying for your sin, his resurrection from the grave, showing the check cleared. It went through, it was more than enough. The Bible teaches that person will have eternal life. That's the message of Christianity. It's not, hey man, if you do good things, then you'll be with God in heaven forever. And the only way that you can accept that is by coming to a place where you're like, I'm thirsty. And if I'm gonna get into heaven, God, it's not gonna be because I clean myself up. If I'm gonna stay out of heaven, it's not gonna be because, man, I'm a bad person. You don't know what I've done. Both of those reflect someone who's not thirsty or not willing to accept the payment Jesus made freely for them. I mean, if you've ever wondered, like, man, isn't it really God just accepts the good people? You have not read the Bible. I mean, at Jesus' last moments on planet Earth, there's this moment where he has this uh, uh, occasion with these two thieves, and there's these thieves surrounding him. So Jesus is being crucified, and it says that he's crucified between two thieves, or two criminals is the word that's used. And these were men who, who had not just, you know, broken any kind of law. If you were crucified in that day, it would be synonymous with the type of crimes that our day that would merit the death penalty. In other words, in Jesus' day, it wasn't like, oh man, you're speeding on your camel. Give him the crucifixion. It would be crimes that just like today, you don't get killed, capital punishment for, for speeding. You get capital punishment for murder, for rape, for something, for terrorism. That's the type of actions that these two thieves, that the son of God, perfect righteousness is being crucified between. And in one of the last moments that Jesus has on planet Earth, one of the criminals asked Jesus for a favor. He says, I've spent my whole life running from you. He had done things that who knows what he had done. Something on the equivalent of murder or rape. He had ruined someone's life, maybe taken someone's son or daughter and killed them. And he looks at the Son of God and says, will you remember me? I'm going to ask you a favor. I've got nothing else to ask. I've got nowhere else to go, Jesus. My hands are nailed to a piece of wood. Will you remember me? He was thirsty. And Jesus said what he would say to you, and he says to anyone who acknowledges, I'm unworthy, God. Will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me because of nothing that you did, despite everything wrong that you did, but the fact that you were simply thirsty. You acknowledge your need. All you need is need to be a Christian. It's the message of Christianity. So who's gonna be in heaven? Someone who acknowledges their thirst, acknowledges their need. And then he says, those who are victorious. What does that mean? You gotta be victorious? Uh, the word victorious is the Apostle John. It's, it's really kind of one of his favorite words inside of the book of Revelation. It's the word nikeo, if you've heard that word before. And inside of the uh, book of Revelation, he uses it several times. The good news is, if you're like, victorious, am I victorious? I don't know if I'm victorious. I definitely wasn't in March Madness. What does it mean to be victorious? <laughs> he gives us the definition in 1 John chapter 5, where he says, who is victorious? And he answers his own question. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. So the person who accepts freely, the person who's victorious, and it says this, who is it that overcomes or is victorious? It's the same word. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What does it mean to be victorious? It means that you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, as the Son of God. That's the person who overcomes. Then he tells us who won't be there. The cowardly, the unbelieving. And he goes through a list that essentially could stop right there, unbelieving. Anyone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. So they're defined by sexual immorality, drug abuse, that's what he says, by 
the actions that they've done in this life, they're not defined by Jesus. So anyone who has not believed in him. And then if you're like, well, I haven't done those things and maybe I haven't been sexually more, then he says liars and he covers everybody. And he says, these are the people who will not be there. Anyone who has not trusted in Jesus will spend eternity. And then finally he says, that those who are there will be those whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How crazy is this, dude? So what the Bible teaches is that there's, there's this book that God has up in heaven somewhere. And every time that someone trusts in Jesus or accepts what he did on the cross, man, Jesus, I'm not worthy to get into heaven. I messed up today, yesterday, a lot. I've done some bad things. But I accept that you died in my place because you love me. And so I'm not going to trust in what I've done. I'm going to trust that you died in my, you paid for my sin and you rose from the grave. When a person accepts that and trusts in Jesus, their name, it says, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And what the Bible teaches is that whoever's going to get in to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and new earth has their name written in there. If it's not written in there, you're not getting in. It comes down to essentially that. Not how did they live in this life. It comes down to is their name written in there or not. It's, it's essentially like this. A few years ago, I was in charge of planning my high school's 10-year reunion, which was feels like a mistake on their part. And uh, so I had to plan a party for like 1,000 people because I don't have enough to do. And, uh, and so I... Uh, I, you know, had to rent out a venue and had to, like, plan out um, having food and catering and kind of all this stuff. And it was down in, in Houston and um, planned it all out. And I brought my wife who didn't go to high school with me. So she's, like, going to meet all these strangers who you can barely recognize, uh, a thousand people in, in, this, in my class. And, um, and so I'm, like, running around trying to host the event and do, you know, make sure that putting out fires. And I was, like... Uh, I asked my wife, hey, will you just stand at the door? Here's the list. You'll be the entrance, essentially the bouncer. So she's seven months pregnant at this time. Just put the prego lady at the front door and be the bouncer, which was pretty genius, honestly, because no one's going to be mean to the pregnant lady. Anyways, and uh, it was further genius because she didn't know anyone from my class. So to her, it was like, hey, did they buy a ticket? Is their name on the list? If it's not on the list, then you can't get in. Just tell me your name, it's on the list. Versus me, who may have been tempted to be like, oh, man, well, you were kind of the captain of the football team. We'll let you in here. Or, I think I was kind of mean to you in high school. Get on in here. Or, you know, whatever the excuse was. I, uh, I would have been tempted to, based on who they were or how they behaved or, you know, the high school experience or how did I know them, not necessarily based on whether or not they were just on the list. What the Bible teaches is it comes down is simply that. If you're going to spend eternity with God, it's not just your default position. The default position of humanity is hell. And it's only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, is what it says, who have spent eternity with God. How do you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life? You must be victorious. How are you victorious? A person is victorious by simply one thing, believing in Jesus. That's 1 John chapter 5. That's what it says. And those who believe in Jesus have accepted. This is what the Bible teaches. If you have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're victorious. And that means you've believed in Jesus, which means you have accepted what he did on your behalf because you acknowledged you were thirsty. That's what it says. That's who's going to be in heaven, those who are thirsty. And so they accept out of their thirst, Jesus, to quench that thirst or to meet their need. And they believe in him and they are victorious forever. And they are written in the Niamh's book of life forever. Those, who, those are the ones who are going to spend eternity with God in heaven. Finally, 
what are we going to do in eternity? Is it going to be harps? You know, is it, can we fly? Is it just kind of whatever you want it to be? Like, I love cotton candy. There's cotton candy everywhere. Like, what is heaven going to be like? And we're told in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life. So the river goes right through the tree of life. Remember the tree of life is from the Garden of Eden, if you've read Genesis, that it reappears. And inside of the tree of life, or at the tree of life, it is a tree that's bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. There's food in heaven. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What does that mean? It means, man, there's gonna be no doubt who they are in eternity because it'll be seen right on them. I'm his, I'm Christ's. There will be no more night and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord their God will give them light and they will reign or rule with him. It's the idea of royalty forever and ever. And the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. You can take them to the bank. Our third idea is what will we do in heaven? There's two things that really I wanna pull out from this text and from other texts that we see in scripture. The two things that we're gonna do inside heaven is work and worship. Work and worship. The Bible just said that, hey, the servants of God are gonna serve him. They're gonna go throughout life and in eternity, they're gonna serve God in the new heavens and new earth. The Bible tells us in other places that it gives an indication that, hey, we're gonna work. There may be some, there's gonna be some uh, way that we experience jobs and uh, experience almost a calling in life that God is gonna assign to each of us some sort of work that we're gonna do for him for all of eternity. But it won't be like the work in this life. Like this world is full of work that uh, is just toilsome or I'm filled with anxiety or it's, it's, um, I'm, there's bad bosses. There's all kinds of things that are a result of sin in this life. But it says it'll be restored to like it was at the beginning. Do you know that there was work before sin entered the world? It was a part of the garden. Like work is not a consequence of sin or the fall of man. Work was a part of God's original plan. And in eternity, he is going to allow you and I to experience a work that doesn't bring pain and toil. It brings joy and satisfaction. It's almost like the things that you do in life, you're like, dude, I just feel like alive when I do this. I love this type of thing. That's the type of thing that you and I are gonna do. You may be doing it right now, but there's no question that you're gonna do it for all of eternity as he's gonna assign and he wove you stitch by stitch together in your mother's womb. He knows exactly the best type of calling or work for you to do and for all of eternity, you're gonna experience the joy of getting to do that with him. We know that there's certain jobs that won't be in heaven uh, there won't be a need for pastors um, because everyone will be saved. Um, I'll be looking for work if uh, anyone's hired. And uh, there won't be a need for uh, firefighters because there won't be fire. There won't be a need for policemen because there won't be crime. There won't be a need for medical or for doctors or for nurses because there won't be sickness or death or any of those different things. And so uh, there'll be jobs that won't exist there anymore, but there will be for all of eternity a joy. And you're like, dude, how, I can't even imagine. I hate my job. I can't even imagine the idea of like, oh yeah, I really enjoy doing this. Even that will be removed. As he will assign you work that brings life, it will not be boring. Boredom is a symptom of the fall. 
Boredom is a result of sin. It's a result of the curse, the Bible says. You know, heaven is not a place that's boring. Hell is a boring place. Heaven is a place that is um, every moment increasingly more pleasurable, more fulfilling, more satisfying, where every moment is better than the one before it. Forever and ever and ever. That's what the Bible says you and I will experience. And he tells us part of the way that we're gonna work is you and I, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, is you're gonna rule. You're gonna reign with God forever. What does that mean? I have no idea. And uh, there's a lot of debate out there. Some people say, man, you're gonna reign over the angels because there's indication that that's gonna happen in Scripture. Some people, um, C.S. Lewis thought, hey, you're gonna rule over different galaxies. It's not clear exactly. Here's what I know it means. It means God did not create you for insignificant things. But the God who's there looks at you and he's like, look, you're gonna reign with me like royalty. You're gonna be, as it were, a prince or a princess, a part of the dynasty of God forever and ever and ever. And when he looks at you, he doesn't see some insignificant, hey, you're nothing, you're not that important. He looks at you and sees all that will be and can be and should be and he wanted to be from the very beginning of time. He sees someone who's gonna rule and reign with him forever, who's the crown of all creation. That's what he looks when he sees his children. That's what he looks when he sees you. And you're gonna reign with him forever and ever. So the first idea is work. And the second idea we're told in the Bible and in this text is that we're gonna worship God forever. What are we gonna do in heaven? We're gonna work and we're gonna worship. And we think worship, here's where we're doing, a, uh, we're kind of done a disservice, is we've used language that almost makes worship, when I say worship, what do we think? Singing. No offense, John. Uh, we think, hey, that's it. We think like, oh my gosh, I, I'm not even a good singer. I really don't like, I try to get here late, honestly, because I don't wanna be a part of the songs. We're gonna sing forever and ever. That doesn't sound exciting. Will the cotton candy at least be there? Uh, and we think that that's what it's gonna be. That's not what worship means, biblically speaking. When you are given a glimpse in what, what is worship, worship is, uh, is living. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that you and I are to offer the way that we live as a spiritual sacrifice to God. The way that you date, the way that you handle alcohol, the way that you handle sexuality, the way you use money, all that stuff today can be an act of worship. And in heaven for all of eternity, the way that you live will be worshiping God. And you'll experience a joy uh, from enjoying God forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what we're going to experience in eternity. Music is a part of that, and that'll be a part of it as well. But it's not exclusively that, or even mostly music. It's the way that you and I live our life for all of eternity. As a part of worshiping, uh, it'll come and flow just freely from seeing God's face. And I wish I had time to really go in, in depth into what that means. But what John says is that you are going to see God. You're gonna see him eyeball to eyeball. If you're a Christian in the room, your eyes are gonna behold him. In the Old Testament, we're told that, that um, God tells Moses, hey, dude, I, Moses asked God, hey, can I see you? I just wanna see you. Come on, let me see your face. And God says, essentially, like, if you see me, you're gonna explode. That's how amazing I am, which is like, why would you expose, explode if he's so amazing? No idea. But that's how amazing God was, to the point where he says, look, hey, I'm gonna cover your eyes and hide you in this rock and I'll pass before you, and you can kind of see the afterglow of me, and, uh, and that'll have to be enough. And Moses was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he uh, passes by before him. And it says Moses sees him, and he lights up like a glow stick for a week, just seeing that part of God. And it says, man, you're gonna see him face to face, and you know what happens when you see him? You're gonna change. If you're a Christian, that's why we're told we change. In 2 Corinthians chapter three, 
that you and I, when we see God, the more we see him, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Everything broken about you, every insecurity, every sin temptation, every anxiety, everything that was never meant to be a part of you is gonna fall off and you're gonna see him. And if you're a Christian, it's coming. That's not some pie in the sky, theoretical. You're gonna see him and everything is gonna change. You're gonna worship him and you're gonna work with him. I think the biggest challenge is, is still inside of this room. Um, if I'm sitting here, I'm like, man, yeah, I, I think I wanna go to heaven more now. I, I, I don't really know though. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it sounds like we're gonna have jobs that we don't hate and it's gonna be nice and um, every, I'll get to go to Mount Everest maybe and not have to worry about oxygen tanks. Uh, it sounds pretty cool. And you still may be sitting there going like, I don't, I don't know if I really want to go. I still want to have, get married. I still want to get kids. Or I really even want to go to heaven. And um, I don't know that you've ever wanted anything else. I think at the end of the day, the deepest, strongest desire that you have ever had has been one for him. I'll explain it like this. I, um, when I was in college, I spent uh, five weeks in a village in Africa. And... Um, and five weeks was like one of those things where I signed up for, um, yeah, I'll be gone five weeks, it'll be great. And like three weeks in, you're like, yeah, so this is Africa, okay. Um, and I just, I remember feeling like so like homesick for the last, last week or week and a half and being like, man, I, my sister had just had a baby and I had to come back and essentially go right back to school. So it was like my summer's totally gone. Um, I'm like missing everything from my mom to Mexican food to like just air conditioning. And, um, and I just remember feeling really homesick. And, uh, and in this life, every pain, every longing, every desire that you've ever had is being homesick. Like whether you're Christian or not, you came into the room and you got hurts, you got things that are a part of your life, you got things that you wish you could change about yourself, you got things where you're dissatisfied, you got desires maybe to be married, maybe to have a more successful career, maybe you have a desire to, to not have to deal with some of the baggage, baggage from your past or something that's, I don't know, just been a part of your story. Maybe you have a deep desire, you just wanna be successful, maybe it's a deep desire, I wanna be married, maybe it's a deep desire, I wanna have kids. And when I said the idea that, man, maybe you're sitting there going, I don't know if I really want to go to heaven. I don't know if you've ever wanted anything else. Every desire you've ever had. You thought it was a desire for a husband, but you really just wanted to be loved. You wanted to feel the love that will only come in the arms of your Savior someday in all of eternity, and you're going to experience it. Maybe you wanted to feel security. You're like, man, I just don't know if I'm gonna be provided for and I'm worried I'm kind of working like three jobs because I'm not gonna go back to where I was and I was poor growing up and you have this deep desire to just be provided for and it's ultimately a desire that will only be satisfied in all of eternity. It's a desire for heaven. You're homesick. Every desire, every ache, every pain in this life is one that ultimately is just an echo that you're not home and you're homesick. And you came in here tonight homesick. You're going to leave this room tonight homesick. And whether or not you ever come to even realize it, you were born with a desire that was placed inside of your heart, a desire to be home. It's a desire that you're going to have tomorrow when you wake up. 
In 10 years, at the, at the time that your first child is born, you're still gonna be plagued with that desire. And when you're laying on your deathbed someday, it's gonna be inside of you, beating there. Because God tells us he put it there. Ecclesiastes chapter three tells us that God said, I put eternity in every person's heart. So that that longing, that echo, that craving for something else in this world would never go away. No matter how many times they get whatever they thought that they wanted, it's not going away. They're homesick. And I put it there so that they would long to be home. They would know they're not home yet. But they will be if they trust in the one who gave his life for them. If you have never had a moment where you've trusted in Jesus as the payment for your sin, you are homesick. And it is only going to get worse. And you're going to live, if you die and you never trust in Jesus, you will live with the reality that you'll never be home. And what could have been the infinite joy, the ecstasy for all eternity that awaits those who believe in Jesus will be something that could have been and it slipped from your grip. It was just always there and you never accepted it. And you may be thinking, well, uh, man, I'm gonna stand before God and you know, maybe he'll reasonably understand me. You're gonna stand before him and he's gonna say that on April 10th, 2018, you heard the message of Jesus. You can no longer live this life being like, I never heard that there's a God out there who says, man, I accept people not on the basis of what they do, but on the basis of how they accepted my son and his death in their place and his resurrection, proving he's the son of God. I accept people on that. So you can no longer stand before him and you're gonna stand before him. And he will look at April 10th, 2018 will be a day that marks forever your life, forever your eternity, and whether you accepted him or not, and the God who's there, he's crazy about you. He's already extended the invitation that he's gonna accept you. The question is, will you accept him? Let me pray. Father, I stand before a group of people who you love way more than I do. And yet even as messed up as my heart is, I can think of no more significant thing than if it's true that we really can know where we're gonna spend eternity. I can think of no more uh, significant decision that someone could make if it's true that the factor of where they're gonna spend eternity is the factor of Jesus and what do they do with him? And that alone determines everything. And so I just ask for your help, Lord. I ask that the Spirit of God right now would move in people's hearts, would push aside insecurity, push aside pride that's holding people back from making a decision to accept you as their King, their Savior, to trust in you, that you would open their eyes and they would be among those who are gonna spend eternity forever and ever with you, their king, the one that all of their life they've longed for, whether or not they even realized it. Father, we love you and we wait for that day. And in this life, all we can do is try to dream or imagine or take what you've told us about what it's gonna be like when we're finally home. Would you help us in the midst of feeling homesick to not turn to 
anything other but your love as we wait to go home. We love you, Jesus. Amen.